Are you a friend or an enemy of God? How do you know? Does it even matter? These are some of the questions that get answered in the passage of Scripture that we're considering today. Our text for this morning is a parable. John MacArthur defines a parable as an ingeniously simple word picture illuminating a profound spiritual lesson. In simplest terms, we might understand a parable to be an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And from our own experience, we know that stories and images are powerful teaching tools. Being the greatest teacher ever, Jesus often used these everyday, easily recognizable characters and events to illuminate spiritual principles. And that's what he's doing in our passage this morning as we read from Luke, Luke's Gospel. We are looking at the parable of the ten minas, a story Jesus uses to teach a lesson. Let's take just a few seconds to empty our heads and see if we might be open to this lesson that God wants to teach. Our Father, again humbly, we bow before you and before your word. We come here completely dependent upon you for wisdom and truth. We come here forsaking our own preconceived notions and ideas of what is right and good, even if you would replace them with what is true and best. So help us, Lord, as we hear your word this morning, for it to be your word and to do its work in our lives. We humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now sometimes, I'm sure you've found this to be true, parables can be kind of complex. There are some parables in the Bible that are difficult to understand. But generally speaking, a parable has one main point, and it's not so hard to understand. This happens to be one of those parables that's not so hard to understand. And the reason why it's not so hard to understand is because we are told early on its purpose, why it is included in Luke's Gospel. Verse 11, as they heard these things, he, Jesus, proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So Jesus tells this story for two reasons. He's nearing Jerusalem. He knows the time for telling anyone anything is running short. He knows he's not going to be on the earth for much longer. He also knows that events in Jerusalem are going to take place at a rapid pace. Things are going to transpire very quickly. He knows that he has told his disciples what is going to happen when he gets there. Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to 33, and taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise. Well, that seems plain enough now, doesn't it? But the disciples didn't understand what he was talking about. And as they came nearer to Jerusalem, what is about to happen 
is still not what the people accompanying Jesus are expecting to happen. After an initial reception, Jesus will be rejected which speaks to reason two for the parable, the kingdom of God that they were looking for, hoping for, the earthly establishment of the kingdom of God and the reign of their conquering Messiah was not going to appear right away. It was not going to happen immediately. So Jesus tells this parable to correct, actually, the wrong thinking of the disciples and the people who were with him to fix the assumptions that they had, to set them straight. Though the implications of the teaching are not just for those original hearers. We can also benefit from what Jesus teaches in the parable of the ten minor. The story he tells is of a nobleman who was going far away to receive a kingdom, and then he was going to be coming back. Why, you might ask, would a nobleman have to travel to a faraway country to receive a kingdom? Well, I really appreciate you asking. Because it probably wouldn't be obvious to us as we read through, that seems rather an odd thing, but you know what? What Jesus is talking about here actually happened. Archelaus was a son of a king in a region of Judea that had been conquered by the Roman Empire. He went to Rome to obtain from Caesar Augustus a confirmation of his title to reign over the part of the country which had been left to him by his father, a name you might recognize, Herod the Great. The Jews, knowing the character of Archelaus, sent an embassy of about 50 men to Rome to prevail on Augustus not to allow this man to rule over them. But Archelaus received his kingdom nonetheless, and he reigned in Judea in the place of his father. And this is a fact that was fresh in the mind of many Jews. So Jesus' audience would have understood this practice of going away to receive a kingdom, but also the idea of returning, of coming back. The nobleman departs. On leaving, he entrusts ten of his servants with a mina, which equates to about three months' worth of wages. He tells them to engage in business with his goods until he comes back. Some of the citizens, Luke tells us, some of the citizens of the country would rather that he didn't come back. They didn't like him. They despised this nobleman, in fact, and they did not want him to rule over them, so they lobbied against him. But as the parable illustrates, their lobbying was to no effect. Having received the kingdom that he went away for, the nobleman returns with authority and demands an accounting of what his servants have done with what he left them with. And he he finds some mixed results there. One of his subjects had diligently followed his Lord's directive to do business and had multiplied what was given to him ten times. And as a result, he's rewarded with the rule over ten cities. A second servant also had taken his Lord's words to heart, and he multiplied what had been given to him five times, and he was then given rule over five cities. But a third, sadly, did absolutely nothing with what he was given. 
He squirreled it away, hid it in a handkerchief. It's interesting, as we read this parable, that to justify doing nothing with the master's goods, the servant blames the master. He stated that the reason that he didn't do anything with what he'd been given was because he knew the master to be a severe man. But the nobleman exposes the weakness of his excuse. If he really believed that his master was such a severe man, wouldn't he have at least put the money in the bank and earned a little bit of interest for him? No, the reason that he didn't do anything with the nobleman's goods was plain and simple. He didn't want to. He just didn't want to. He was not a friend of the nobleman, not a friend of the king, and he had absolutely no interest in contributing to the advancement of his kingdom. Now, because he did nothing with the mina that he had received, it was taken from him, and it was reallocated to the person who had multiplied his ten times. So in this parable, the faithful servant is given even more, The unfaithful servant loses what he had. And then the story concludes in a very gory, almost shocking, and unexpected manner. The nobleman orders his enemies to be brought before him, the ones who rejected him, the ones who did not want him to rule and reign, but in the end couldn't prevent it. He has them brought before him and slaughtered, executed. All right, all right, that's a nice story. What's this about? Let's pull apart the pieces. First and probably most obvious to you, when Jesus speaks about the nobleman, he's talking about himself. The nobleman, and we who know Jesus know him to be a noble man, amen? Perfect, sinless, compassionate, forgiving, A noble man in every respect, the Son of God, God himself, the noble man, is Jesus. And what is Jesus doing, right, as he's telling this parable? In this time frame, what is going on? We know this, he's journeying to Jerusalem. And we have already read it from from Luke 18. He's journeying to Jerusalem in order to be killed. His religious and his political enemies are threatened by his popularity and by his influence. And they're going to arrange for him to be falsely charged and crucified. In their minds, Christ's death is the eradication of a foe. Getting rid of somebody who is in their way of being who and how they want to be. But in the larger picture, Christ's death is so much more than that. For we know that Jesus was sinless and never wronged anyone and never transgressed any law. Therefore, he was undeserving of the penalty of death that sin invites. And yet, he would go to the cross and die anyway. Not for his sin, but as payment for the sin of the world. And in this way, we know that Jesus was a substitute. He died in the place of, he died in the stead of, what the hymn writer rightly calls, ruined sinner. He 
died in our place. And he was the atonement. He atoned for. He paid the price for our sin with his own undeserved death so that all who would put their faith in him are forgiven and saved from eternal death. They are recipients of eternal life. Jesus is going, as he tells this parable, to Jerusalem to be killed. Luke 9.51, the verse we began the series with, when Jesus set his face resolutely to go, the time was at hand for him to be taken up. You see, not only is Jesus going to die for the sins of the world, after he's killed, his body will be taken off the cross and buried. He will be placed in a borrowed tomb. It was borrowed. On the one hand, I think, to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 9. But also because he wasn't planning to use it for very long. After three days in the tomb, Jesus will rise from the dead. We call this the resurrection. And Jesus being raised from the dead is the proof that his payment for the sins of the world, his payment for your sin, my sin, his payment was acceptable to God the Father, and sufficient to avert the wrath of God that would rightly come to us. After his resurrection, Jesus is going to appear again alive to his disciples and to many others. And then as he predicted, and as we read in the first chapter, or read in the first chapter of Acts, Jesus is going to be taken up. That's the ascension of Christ. If you have your Bible with you, turn with me. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. You might be here today wondering why us nutty Christians think Jesus is coming back. Well, this will tell you why. Verse 6, Acts 1, beginning in verse 6. Just a few verses down, I think, to 11. So this is after the resurrection of Jesus. He has presented himself alive. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? You see this theme running throughout, right? When is the kingdom coming? When is the kingdom coming? And Jesus is trying to tell, I'll tell you when the kingdom is coming. It's not coming right away, and it's not coming, it's not coming now. He said them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. What's he saying there? You need to have faith. God has it in control. God knows the plan. God knows the time. It's not for you. Your job is to be obedient. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went... Can you just pick, can you put yourself there? I mean, that doesn't happen every day. 
And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes <laughs> and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? And after they picked themselves up off the ground, because they were scared to death by two men in white robes, that's my addition, that's my scribal insertion. Why, why are you looking this way? This Jesus, who was taken up from you in heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So back to the parable. The nobleman is Jesus. The faraway country he's going to is what? He's going to heaven. Jesus is going away. Jesus is going to be taken up. He's going to sit at the right hand of the Father. Where according to Philippians chapter 2, he is highly exalted and given the name that is above all names, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the King. And he's gone away to a faraway country. He is reigning in heaven. But as we read in Acts 1, and as he says in this parable, he will, the king will, return. In the meantime, he has enemies. He had them then. He has them now. They do not want him to rule over them. These are the ones who, who reject Jesus they reject his claims of kingship. They do what they can to impugn his authority, to, to shed his rule, to not submit. On the road to and in the streets of Jerusalem, this was Israel. As we have seen throughout the series, this is Israel failing to receive her Savior. This is anyone who when Jesus passes by, when the truth of the gospel is presented, is spoken, when an invitation is extended, this is anyone who fails to receive him now. Jesus said this, Luke chapter 11, verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Whoever's not with me is against me. That's how God understands us in relation to Him. Okay? There is no neutral ground. There is no neutral ground. There are two options. You are either for or against Jesus. Those four Jesus will be with him, will desire his approval, will, will be careful to be about his kingdom's work. Those against will live without him, will care nothing for his approval, and be about their own kingdom's work. And this parable illustrates how we know whether one is a friend or an enemy of God, and what happens to those who are for Jesus, and what happens to those who are against him. 
in the parable, the nobleman, knowing that he's going away, calls ten servants and gives them each a mina, again, the equivalent of about three months of wages, which is a decent chunk of change. And it might make us think then, okay, this is a parable or a story about money. But fundamentally, it is not about money. Money is the common, well-known object that Jesus uses to make a comparison or to lay it beside something spiritual, to give us a spiritual lesson, okay? The minor represents more than money. It represents any and all that our gracious God gives us. Anything and all that our gracious God gives us. Because you do understand this, I pray, all that we have is from the kindness of our God. All that we have is a gift from on high. And as such, because all that we have comes from Him and is His, that's what the Bible teaches us, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, He has a right and a reasonable expectation to believe that we are going to steward these gifts for the advancement of His kingdom. As the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, put it in a sermon on this text, he says this, If you love your master, you will soon discover what to do for him, and you will do it with delight. As the nobleman went away to receive his kingdom, eventually to return, so Jesus has gone to heaven, from which he promises to return. And as the nobleman entrusted his servants with goods to be used for him while he was away, so God entrusts you and God entrusts me with the gift of life and with goods that are to be used for him. As we live in this interim time, and that's when we're living in this interim time between what Christ did on the cross and his eventual return in power. Beloved, our King is in heaven. And He's coming back. Okay? And in the meantime, this this parable inspires us to evaluate what are we doing with what has been entrusted to us. I'd like you to consider just for a moment, if you can, how and with what you have been blessed by God. It's going to take more than a minute, isn't it? If you are a Christian here today, you have been saved. Your sins are forgiven. You are reconciled to God. Your transgressions have been separated from you as far as the east is from the west, and you have a God who pledges to remember them against you no more. You are saved. How do you then live in response to the showering upon you of such an undeserved gift? And you are saved not just for yourself, not just like, phew, thank goodness, I got, I got the gotta get out of hell card. <laughs> wow. No, you are saved. As we, we learned this in our study of Exodus, right? Saved for God's glory. That's what you're here for. So I... I ask, are you in fact, do you really know that you are living for God's glory? Pastor, I'm just trying to get through today. I get it. Life is hard. 
Why are you coming in and put this great big lofty stuff on top of me? Because that's the context in which we're supposed to be living. I know how, how easy it is to get caught up in the day-to-day and get into this survival mode. We think, I'll be lucky to survive, let alone thrive. But you know what? We have to step back and we have to zoom out and we have to ask ourselves when it's all said and done, can I say that I'm living for the glory of God, because that is what I have been saved for. That is what you have been saved for. I pray that you can say, yes, I do, by God's help, live for his glory, but also this, if a quick quick evaluation of your life would lead you to say, you know what, I think I'm I'm missing that. I think I'm messing up a little bit. Listen then, okay, forsake yourself now, begin today. You can't do anything about the past, but start now. Commit yourself to live for Jesus. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you must know that you've been tasked with a great commission. Right? What is that great commission? Does anybody know? Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, what is it? Go and make disciples. Teaching. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded, Jesus says. Baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Yeah, we have a great commission to evangelize, to share Christ, to teach others, and to obey ourselves what He commands. To not leave our light hidden in a basket, right? But to live and to speak in such a way that others might come to know this beautiful Savior who has made Himself known to us. If you are born again, the Holy Spirit of God lives within you. And with that spirit comes the guarantee, listen, the guarantee of at least one spiritual gift. And I'm going to say, the people I know have more than one, but there's nobody who names the name of Jesus who can look me in the eye with a straight face and say, I don't have any gifts. Read your Bible. Figure it out. The Spirit gifts His people. And he gives his people for a purpose as well. Do you know what that is? The building up, the edification of his church. So if you are born again today, the Holy Spirit of God is entrusting you with a gift to be used, not just for his glory, but for the building up, for the edification of his church. So listen, what are you doing today that builds up the church of Jesus? Build this church up. Would you please build this church up? Leave the tearing of the church down to the heathen, to the unsaved, right? We don't need to be about the business of tearing the church down. We're to be about the building building up of the body of Christ. I'm getting a little passionate. I love Jesus. And I love his church. And I hope you love his church too. You want to serve him and you want to build that church up so we can make a difference in this world. What are you doing with the gifts the Spirit has given you? How are you serving Jesus? Where are you serving Jesus? Does how you're serving Jesus measure up to the way your time is spent in other pursuits? What are you doing with your spiritual gifts? Please don't tell me that they are squirreled away figuratively in a handkerchief. Gaining nothing. Doing nothing. 
Because why? Because we're selfish? Because we're lazy? Because we're afraid? The parable of the ten miners inspires us to work for our king while he's away. Jesus tells it, remember verse 11, because there were those who thought the establishment of this kingdom would be immediate. In truth, no one knew or knows the day or the hour when the kingdom of Jesus will be finally and fully realized. That is why we must be faithful with what we have while we wait and diligent to remember that Christ is coming back. And when the king returns with his kingdom and you give an account for what he left with you, pray that you will be found to have been a friend of the king. The parable, this parable exposes one supposed friend who was not a friend at all because he did nothing for the king. And Jesus said it in John chapter 15, verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Do you remember that verse? John 15, 14. You are my friends if. In other words, you can say that you're a friend of Jesus, but at some point your true status will be exposed. And even on the here and now, the way we know that we are friends of the king is by following his commands. Let no one, please, be deceived into believing that you can be a friend of God if you want to willfully disobey his commands. And the time to shore this thing up and straighten it out right now is now. So if a quick assessment of your life today convicts you that you're not walking in obedience then simply begin today to apply your life and your goods to the Lord. Well, Pastor Mark Dever put it this way in a message on the same passage. He says, everyone will live to see the end of the time for decision and live into the time of eternal consequences. You will live until you die or you will live until Jesus returns. And either way, in that instant, the time for decision is past, and you will have chosen your lot, and you will eternally own the outcome of your choices. That is absolutely part of this parable, a gory end to this parable, where the king orders his enemies brought before him to be slaughtered. So we see now, this one Jesus, who was wrongly judged and executed, will return to judge perfectly and righteously. And this one who was rejected will be the one doing the rejecting. Jesus is coming back with all and absolute authority to reward his true friends and to vanquish his enemies. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to one more place. In the book of Revelation, 
I appreciate your patience here. I don't know what other choice you have. <laughs> it's a long message, but it's a, it's a passage that you can't shortcut. And, and, as you shall see, it's way too important to try, to shortcut. So, if you're in the book of Revelation, turn to the 19th chapter. Okay, a couple weeks ago, I quoted from this book of Revelation, and then I quoted a, a pretty well-known verse from chapter 3. And in that verse, Jesus is... Um, Speaking, right? Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come unto him and sup with him or eat with him and, and he with me. That is a common sort of image and picture that we have of Jesus. Uh, it is an invitation from Jesus to receive him. And it conjures up this idea of sort of a, um, a meek Savior who has much to offer, but who, as I said a couple weeks ago, is not going to kick the door in, uh, uh, the door of your life in. It's just going to knock and give you an opportunity. Well, we live in this time, praise the Lord, while Jesus is knocking. You can still open the door to Jesus. You can still do whatever He wants to do, you to do. But I want you to see here in verse... Verses, start in verse 11 of Revelation 19. Someday, he will knock no more. And I saw heaven opened. Behold, a white horse the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. The enemies of Jesus believed they were rid of him when they convinced the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, to have him crucified. We have no king but Caesar, they said, feigning allegiance where it was not and abandoning altogether the principles and the prophecies of their Jewish faith that had told them that their Messiah would come. He came, and not only did they not receive him, they rejected him, they mocked him. A crown of thorns was driven onto his brow, a reed thrust in his hand for his kingly scepter. They beat him with their fists. 
They whipped him. They spit on him. They tore out his beard. And they asked him all the while, tell us, are you the king of the Jews? And they watched with glee as the Roman soldiers pounded nails through his hands and his feet and hoisted that cross into the air where a placard also was nailed above him that read, This is the king of the Jews. And they saw him breathe his last breath. And they thrust a spear into his side for good measure. His body was taken down and buried, and they, his enemies, were sure they were rid of him. But it was the plan of God all along for this nobleman to go into a far country and receive a kingdom that he bought with his own blood. Few, if any, would have suspected that the road he needed to take to get there would go through a cross or that this far country would be heaven or the death would not prevent him from returning. But he's not dead. He's alive. And he is king. He is king, after all. And no one will ever be rid of him. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The question is not if. The question has never been if. The question is when. When and under what conditions will you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? Will you bow now? Will you bow now in worship and gratitude or later in eternal shame and regret? The kingdom of our God would not be immediately established when Jesus entered Jerusalem. But the eternal rule and reign of Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, is assured. It will come, and when it comes, it will come with rewards for the friends of Jesus and judgment for his enemies. So back to that first question. We have established how you know and why it matters. It is up to you then to answer, are you a friend or an enemy of God? Would you bow your heads with me? I want to encourage you this morning to make a commitment today to use your life as God intends you to. If you have never received Jesus as the true Lord of your life, then I want to encourage you to do that today. If you have been remiss in living your life for Him, then I'd like you to acknowledge that to someone and make a plan to begin to live for Him now. If you have done little to nothing with the common grace that God has blessed you with, or you've not been using the gifts given you by the Spirit of God for the building up of the church, then talk to someone today, please, about how you may start living wisely for the Lord. I want to encourage you to prove yourself to be a friend of God by the faithful use and by the multiplication of all that He has left in your hands as you await His return and the glorious future that God in His goodness
has prepared for you. Lord, we pray that when you come back, you will find us faithfully about your kingdom's work. We pray not to squander any good gift that you have given us, but to use what we have been given to bring glory to your name. Save us, Father, from perilous and selfish pursuits. And may we with joy bear the distinction of being true friends of the King. Amen.